Well, would you stand with me as we come now to God's Word? You'll find the passage we're looking at this morning in the program in front of you, or if you'd like to find a Bible, it's on page 906 in the Pew Bibles, just in the Pew racks right in front of you. It's John chapter 20, and I'm going to be reading from verse uh, 1 through to verse 10. And so let's pray as we come now to God's Word. Our Father God, we are reminded uh, this special Easter Sunday morning of the fact that Jesus is alive. And as we think of that, we are also reminded uh, that your word tells us that it is a living word. And so we pray, Father, that this morning that uh, you would grant us to hear from you and to be uh, changed to your glory, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, friends, John chapter 20, and as I say, I'm going to read from verse 1 through to verse 10. Let's hear God's word. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Do please sit down. A very good morning to you on this uh, special Easter Sunday morning as we gather together with children and perhaps as families. It's a wonderful family occasion. You know, it takes sometimes uh, perhaps a child to state the obvious. While adults on occasions can be a little bit too polite to say what we all know, a child can just come out and say it, you know, the emperor has no clothes, or put things in a certain way that would make us smile. Uh, we're thinking of uh, our travel plans for the summer. I don't know about you. We hope uh, this year to get back to England. Uh, that's our intention at least. And so we're thinking of traveling and now we're six. Uh, traveling is, is, is uh, you know, not as fun as it was when it was just me. But, um, and so I, you know, I'm thinking of uh, the uh, sometimes perhaps it happens uh, with you that uh, you'll be traveling with children and they'll say something out loud that you're thinking but you hadn't intended to be said about something that's happened or a fellow traveler, you know, above a whisper, and then you have to struggle not to giggle, you know. 
there's a story of a family that went on a beach vacation, but unknowingly turned down a wrong road and ended up at a nudist beach. As they all got out of the car and surveyed the surroundings, unsure what to do next, their child, who had religiously brought her bicycle with her to to ride on the, the boardwalk, noticed that there was an item of clothing missing from everyone. Look, mummy, she said, they've forgotten to bring their bicycle helmets. (laughs) The rest of the items of clothing did not feature on her list of uh, priorities, I suppose. (laughs) Well, this story is so well known to so many of us that it almost takes a child to state the obvious in such a way that we can see that, as it were, the emperor has no clothes. Of course, children don't always get Scripture passages right and all that, but still to me, the most remarkable aspect of this story is the response of the people to the empty tomb. There are complexities here, but that is the heart of it. This was not the response of people who expected the story to end like this. Far from it, in fact, they expected Jesus to be dead. Their prejudice, their expectation was that the Messiah had come to rule literally from Jerusalem to to throw out the Roman invaders and reestablish the throne of David. And so when Jesus talked, as he did frequently in John's gospel about being like a grain of wheat that needed to die or like the temple that had to be destroyed and then three days later rise again, or that the Son of Man must be lifted up like the snake in the desert to bring healing and salvation to all who believe. When Jesus talked in these kind of ways, they did not get it. Even now, we're told, they do not understand from the Scripture that Jesus had to rise again. And so it's important to to understand, to realize that the faith we're finding here evidenced is a faith without prejudice. You see, people sometimes think uh, that in those days such miracles as someone being raised from the dead would have uh, not been particularly shocking. I've even heard people say things like this, they often buried people alive in those days as if the Roman soldiers would not know a dead body when they saw one. These sort of anachronisms, that is, putting on the distant past our expectation of what they thought rather than what they actually thought, they leave us with a feeling that the disciples believed the resurrection because that is what they expected to find. But it is not so. Even though the other disciple here does believe, it is only after he has seen the evidence. And even then, the emperor has no clothes. They're still processing the information so that they simply go back to their homes. Their prejudice, if they had one, was that Jesus had failed. The last thing in the world they expected was Jesus to rise from the dead. The Messiah to them was more like the reincarnation of George Washington coming to sort out the federal government or budget or something. They did not expect their king to be crucified. 
And they certainly had no idea that he would leave an empty tomb behind him. It's like the way that sometimes people look at the small doorways of old houses in Europe in which the absent-minded tall people like me will on occasions crack their heads and think that they were built like that because people were shorter in the old days. Well, in fact, people were not much shorter when those houses were built. Doors were smaller for the same reason that windows were smaller. They were very expensive. And so here... The resurrection, similarly, if they had any category at all in their minds for it, was the resurrection that they hoped would take place at the end of the world. They were grieving. Beginning the week of Shiva, and they discover an empty grave. As a child might point out, they don't stand up and say immediately to the world, we told you so, na, 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 na. They scratch their heads and just go back home. And so this passage then, you see, encourages us us, to come to the story of the empty tomb without prejudice. And that's important because for very different reasons today, the secular worldview that can be suspicious of anything that it would call supernatural, we too can tend to assume that Jesus must be dead. Well, so let's look then at the three responses of Mary, Peter, and the other disciple, probably John, to find this faith without prejudice. First, Mary. As you look down with me at the passage, this is verses 1 and 2 of our passage. And here you can see you find that Mary's, Mary Magdalene's response is uh, what I will call hurried grief. And John, in fact, underlines this response by choosing the present tense in the original throughout these first two verses before switching to the aorist, that's the past tense, broadly speaking, uh, when he comes to verse 3. So it is then that Mary comes, Mary then sees, Mary runs, Mary says. There's a breathless hurry about these first two verses. It's happening very fast. And what she says tells us of her grief. They, she says, uh, verse 2. Now, we don't know who she means by the they that she fears have taken the body of Jesus. But she's probably thinking of Jesus' enemies who may have played, she fears, a final nasty trick on Jesus and his followers. And her grief is emphasized by her saying that we do not know where they have laid For her, a a Jewish woman uh, leading the way in the burial and the the, the rituals and the memorial, the the, the Jewish scriptures put such a high value on proper burial all the way back to Abraham, taking great expense to arrange a proper burial for Sarah. It It was wrenching for her and her grieving state to realize that Jesus might not even be now getting a proper burial. I was listening to a PBS radio interview of a well-known scholar who used to be a Christian but now studies the Bible purely out of academic interest and that alone. And he mentioned that one of the reasons why he had abandoned his faith was that there were contradictions in his view between these sort of resurrection accounts and the different gospel narratives. But while his glass is half empty, mine in this regard is at least half full. 
seems to me that all charges of so-called contradictions are answered by the, the unself-conscious report of the hurried grief of the eyewitness here. See, all the accounts tell us that the resurrection happened on the first day of the week, or literally the one of the Sabbath. And these sort of details tell us how we're dealing with original narratives for the method of counting the week for the Jews at the time was from Sabbath to Sabbath. And each day in between was simply given a number rather than a name as we have today, like we give numbers for the days when we are counting by the months. And so this was the one of the Sabbath, that is the first day of the week on what we call Sunday. You see, on occasions, the old charge that Friday to Sunday is not three days uh, comes up, and perhaps you've heard that. But again, a familiarity with ancient ways of counting would help give sense to this hurried grief account. Because then, in the ancient world, no one knew of the zero in counting. Counting tended to be inclusive by and large. And so part of a day or night was accepted as a whole day or night. So Friday, day one. Saturday, day two. Sunday, day three, or three days. And you can find the same sort of counting method of days and nights actually in the Old Testament. For instance, Esther does not drink for three days or nights, which we are told later is called on the third day. Or David discovered a man who had not eaten for three days and nights, which is then called three days ago, you see. Or another detail here that is sort of rushed by with this hurried grief of the, uh, the witness Mary Magdalene is the presence of the other women who the other Gospels mention. Where are they, a skeptic might ask in John's account. But you see, Mary tells us that they're there when she says, we do not know where they put him, referring, I think, to the other women. See, by her hurried grief, her lack of prejudice, Mary is a credible witness to the empty tomb. She tells it like it was, even though she did not expect it or want it to be like this. Of course, even if all the early Christians were simpletons or high on some hallucinogenic drug or other, none of the authorities ever produced the body, though they had ample reason to do so. And so this faith without prejudice is further underlined then, not just by Mary's response that we just looked at, but also the response second of Peter. And this, my friends, is from verses 3 to 7. As you look down there, the character of Peter comes out, doesn't it? I love Peter. His enthusiasm is the antidote to all kinds of religious pessimism, isn't it? You know the story of the two pessimists? They go to a party and they don't shake hands, they shake heads. (laughs) I heard a story once of one pastor who had been at a church for 40 years and had one of the board members apologize for not being able to make the next meeting saying, I'm sorry I couldn't be there. I was looking forward to voting no. But Peter, he is bright. He's eager. I mean, think about it. He has just denied Jesus three times, but his enthusiasm is such that Mary Magdalene goes to him. And his eagerness is such that he right away runs to the tomb. Now, of course, the other disciple outran Peter, which he is enthusiastic to tell us, you know. 
Um, And he outran Peter, which most commentators think was because John was the younger man at the time. Though the delightful commentator of the ancient Eastern Church, Ishodad of Merv, traces John's greater speed to the fact that he thought he was unmarried. Uh, But for whatever reason, uh, Peter, puffing and unfit, not been to the gym recently, older, or unencumbered by carrying a wife with him as a mental baggage or something, (laughs) he he still shrugs off any lacking of eagerness from the experience of the last few days and sprints to the tomb with every bit of physical energy he has left. He may have got there after John, but once more he makes up for his lack of physical fitness with mental eagerness by still being the first to go in. And So how is Peter responding to the news of the empty tomb with personal interest. He's not passive. He's going to find it out for himself. If he is in, he will be all in. Peter may have made mistakes, but at least he got up and started running again, puffing as he went. Strictly speaking, you see, we're not told that Peter did not believe here. We know that he did later, at least, even if not, unlike John, as we shall see in a moment, if not right away. Perhaps like Peter, you need to start again. Easter is the best of times to do so, you know. What more salubrious moment in the calendar to mark your new life than Good Friday to Easter Sunday 2012. There's a story of a man who went to Las Vegas and when he arrived he called up a preacher there asking for the times of the local church services and the minister, somewhat surprised, said that most people don't travel into Las Vegas to go to church and the man said, oh, I'm not coming to Las Vegas to go to church, I'm coming for the parties, but... If I have half as much fun as I intend to have, I will need to go to church on Sunday morning. I'm afraid the offer of an Easter Sunday new beginning is not a license to sin. There must be a death to self before there can be a resurrection to new life. There must be repentance and faith. In Brazil, not that far from São José dos Campos, there is a prison which was renamed Humeita and is run along Christian principles. One Christian leader visited the prison and reported the incredibly low percentage of criminals who are rearrested. Four percent compared with uh, what is normally uh, called America's typical 67 percent. The walls of that prison are decorated with uh, not graffiti but Bible verses. This Christian leader was escorted to the blockhouse that had been used beforehand for torture. And he was told that today only one person actually occupies that cell. Intrigued as to who it might be, he was taken to see who it was. And slowly the enormous door creaked open and he saw the prisoner in the punishment cell. A cross, beautifully carved by the Humaita inmates. The guide said to him, he's doing time for the rest of us. There can be no Easter Sunday without Good Friday. Jesus is off the cross, out of the tomb, and raised on high and rules. 
And if you will give your life to him, even if it means the indignity of running to your neighbor and saying, I want to give my life to Jesus, then you can start again. If Peter three times denied Jesus can have this opportunity, then surely you can. Surely there is nothing that anyone can do that is more serious than denying Jesus. Surely if there is power to bring Peter back, there is power to bring your marriage back, to bring your life back. See, what does it mean, this empty tomb? It means that death itself has been defeated. You say, well, what's required of me? Well, perhaps to go beyond Responding merely with hurried grief like Mary Magdalene or even responding with eager personal interest like Peter. But I actually respond like third John. And this, uh, my friends, you'll see in verses 8 to 10. And as you look down there with me, you can see that this other disciple, uh, first to arrive, second though to go into the tomb, now makes his way into the space where Jesus had been Archaeology has given us some insight into what this tomb that uh, greeted John was probably like. One type of ancient Jewish tomb is known as kokim. These tombs were tunnels cut in what you might call a pigeonhole-like arrangement. Another type of tomb is known as arcosolia. These were semicircular niches formed by cutting away the side walls of the cave for a depth of roughly two or three feet, starting about two and a half feet above uh, ground level. There are also bench tombs then where the body was put on a bench which went around the three sides of the burial cave. In the Church of the Holy Sepulchre where most people think was probably the location, there are tombs nearby of the Kokim type but also the Arcosolia type. And John is probably thinking his mind of the Arcosolia type because right after our passage he tells us of angels sitting where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the feet. Of the tomb itself, expensive tombs like that of Joseph of Arimathea, in which we know that Jesus was laid from chapter 19 before our passage, would not only have been quarried out of rock, but also sealed with probably a disc-like stone that was rolled down a sloping groove right across the floor. And this would have meant that the tomb, though relatively easy to close, would have been very difficult to open, probably impossibly from the inside by human effort, human effort alone, and would have required several strong men at any case to, to uh, shift. Some people said that because it was normal Roman practice to leave the crucified on the cross to decay there, it is incredible to think that Jesus was buried, but the historian Josephus suggests that in Roman-occupied Israel, out of deference to the religious sensibilities of uh, that location, it was actually normal practice for them to be buried, especially before this special Passover Sabbath. And John, following Peter, now goes inside. From outside, he'd only be able to see with the early morning light sort of shafting through the aperture, the strips of linen lying there, but now also the cloth folded by itself was visible to John. 
And the author of John's gospel clearly believes that what he saw was significant. We are told that he saw and believed. This was despite the fact that he too came without prejudice or expectation of believing that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, Augustine thought that all John believed was the report of Mary the tomb was empty, but this seems to me to fly in the face of the story and of the significance of faith in John's gospel and of the drama of the moment as John moves in also now saw and believed. As yet, you see, even the Scripture was not clear to him or them. They did not yet understand that Jesus had to rise again from the dead according to the Scripture. What scripture was this? Perhaps the whole course of the Bible pointing to this moment, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, that this happened according to the scriptures. If there is a particular scripture that was in mind here, it could be the same as Peter and Paul later used to preach the resurrection. That is Psalm 16 verse 10 and context. For on the day of Pentecost, Peter quotes that psalm, as does Paul later in Acts when he preaches to the people in Poseidon Antioch. If you have a Bible, it's worth turning up. If you don't, I'll read to you the context. Psalm 16, beginning of verse, about verse 8, and referring particularly to verse 10, goes like this, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Why? For you will not abandon my soul to shale or the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And as those early Christian preachers, Peter and Paul, pointed out, David did die and did see corruption. But Jesus... He rose again, according to the Scripture. Alternatively, perhaps Isaiah 55, verse 3, I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. Everlasting. Or Hosea, perhaps, chapter 6, verse 2, After two days he will revive us, on the third day he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Or even perhaps Jonah 2, verse 2, From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. And so the whole of Scripture is fulfilled at this moment that he had to rise again, according to the divine guarantee in his God's Word. But John did not yet understand that. He saw and believed. What did he see? There's been a lot of discussion about that. In my view, what uh, needs to be emphasized in the context of John's gospel is the difference between this and what they had seen with Lazarus earlier in the story. See, Lazarus had also come back from the dead, though he would die again, unlike Jesus. Lazarus had also been wrapped in these exactly the same kind of linen cloths, but Lazarus had come out wrapped in them. When Jesus had called Lazarus out by name, because as D.L. Moody said, if Jesus had not specified exactly who by name, all the other dead people would have come out as well. Lazarus came wrapped in these linen cloths. Not so with Jesus. 
They are emphatically lying there. What's more, the cloth, the piece that John could not see from outside the tomb where he was peeping in, the word has that sense of peering or peeping in, the cloth was rolled up or twirled by itself, neatly set to one side, rolled up no longer needed, the sudarion, that is the handkerchief that in normal life was used as a sweat rag when someone was working and used to wrap around the dead man's head to keep the jaw in place was folded up neatly to one side. What John saw then was the very reverse of what he had expected. No scene of violence, no grave robbers, no mess, the burial cloths lying flat with the headcloth slightly separated. What should we say this was like? Like a, like a stiff pair of jeans. When they get wet, they kind of retain the shape of the person who had been wearing them and someone had just stepped out of and still retained that shape. Or like a suit with the tie still on the shirt, but no one inside, but as if the body was still inside, but it no longer was. One commentator says it was like a discarded chrysalis from which the butterfly had emerged. Jesus' resurrection body, another remarks, had simply passed through the clothes like he would pass through the locked door. Unlike Lazarus, Jesus was not simply restored. He was resurrected to a whole new order of existence. And John saw and believed. How will you respond, my friend? With grief, like Mary... With personal interests like Peter, or with faith like John. Perhaps you've uh, heard the uh, thing that the child was once uh, meant to have said about faith, uh, that uh, the child was heard to have, uh, overheard to have said, faith is uh, believing things that are not true. But you see, here we can put childish ways behind us and realize that faith is believing the evidence of your eyes if not yours then John's let's pray together Father on this Easter Sunday morning with all the brightness and vigor of the day. I want to pray that by your Spirit you would help us to see as your word is opened up. You would grant us the eyes of faith to trust on the basis of what John saw. Father, I pray that we would Come back to life. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.